hey, if you're listening to this, you're about to listen to uh, a lecture from my class, biology slash psychology, 2606, Introduction to Behavioral Neuroscience for the fall term here at Algoma University. I'll be your host, Dave Broadbeck. I hope you get something out of it, but as I've said many times before, the real hope here is that my students get something out of it. If you do, well, that's also good. Oh, if you are one of my students, that definitely, you know, I'm starting to ramble. Without further ado, here's some intro music and then, you know, me talking about brains. All right, so today we'll probably finish up the stuff on, let's go back a bit here, because that's not where we are. Yeah, we're not there. We are just after that, right? Right there. So last time we ended up, I was talking about how you identify uh, a neurotransmitter. So today we'll talk about different neurotransmitters and then we'll also talk about uh, learning and memory and how that might work at the synaptic level. All right, so um, let's talk about different neurotransmitters. When I was in school, when I was young, back in the 80s, um, there were a lot fewer neurotransmitters that people had discovered, let's say that. So, some of these things either hadn't been discovered or were so new that we didn't talk about them in like intro psych, for example. So I talked about this, the five conditions that have to be met, it has to be present in the terminal, it has to be released on firing, placing that substance, that putative neurotransmitter on an organ or on another neuron, causes firing or causes a reaction. It's taken up for inactivation. And if you inactivate it, it blocks stimulation. So that's basically, if you can find these five things, uh, with apologies to Jeff Foxworthy, I guess. You might be a neurotransmitter. <laughs> so, let's talk about some of them. The first one that was discovered, Vega stuff, right, is acetylcholine. Uh, that's what makes your muscles contract. Really, that's all, that's what that's, that, it's really important in movement. It's also important in um, learning and memory. Uh, a lot of uh, cholinergic uh, circuits in hippocampus, for example. Uh, but it's certainly important there. Now, then there's a whole class of neurotransmitters called monoamines, because they are monoamines, right? There's <laughs> one amine. So, um, okay. First is the catecholamines, norepinephrine, epinephrine, and dopamine. These are all extremely similar looking molecules. If you took a look at the, for those of you who are really into organic chemistry, and if you are, there probably is something wrong with you. Um, it's just, organic chemistry is hard, that's all. Can you take organic chemistry? Yeah, it's it fun, eh? Nightmare. It's really good time, isn't it? Um, <laughs> really, really fun. If by fun you mean chewing on tinfoil while someone pokes your eyes out. That, maybe that's a little dark. Is that a little dark? Okay. So these are all, but if you looked at the molecules, they're extremely similar. Uh, Norepinephrine and epinephrine are important in energizing behavior. 
uh, and the sympathetic nervous system. Dopamine uh, is an important neurotransmitter for all kinds of things, uh, learning and memory, but also uh, deficiencies in dopamine can lead to Parkinson's disease. Too much dopamine can lead to paranoid schizophrenia, very generally. Indolamine, one of them, serotonin, which is 5-HT. And if you take a neurochemist, neuro, like, uh, sorry, uh, organic chemistry, you probably know that the five, what the 5-H stands for. So it's 5-hydroxyl tryptophan, but it's serotonin. Uh, histamine. Uh, serotonin is important in a lot of things, sleep and wakefulness. It seems to have there's something to do with mood in the serotonergic system. It's not as simple as people make it out to be that you don't have enough serotonin if you're depressed. That's just not, the world isn't that simple. Okay. Those of us who are depressed wish it was. Well, no, exactly. Anybody who has yeah. depression takes antidepressants, goes to therapy, all these things. If only we just, there was a pill and it would be gone and the world would be a lot simpler. Um, whenever you're dealing with neurochemistry, you've got some really complicated stuff going on up there. These are exceedingly complicated machines we live in. So um, something complicated like you know, cognition behavior, very rarely is it, say, a single neurotransmitter or something. Uh, histamine's important as a neurotransmitter. In fact, the very first attempt to make antipsychotic drugs was giving psychotic people, giving schizophrenic people um, antihistamines. So they had very, they didn't have their, their noses weren't stuffed up. <laughs> it actually did work a little bit. It did work a little bit. Not as well as the anti-dopamine drugs, basically, which is what modern uh, antipsychotic drugs are. But yeah, histamine's a neurotransmitter. It's also, of course, a hormone. A lot of these things are also hormones when we look at them in the bloodstream. So as soon as they get outside the central peripheral nervous system, they're in the bloodstream, we just call them hormones. It's, just, it's a distinction, really, without a difference, because uh, it's the same molecule. We just call it a hormone when it's in the bloodstream, we call it A. No, a transmitter when it's in the uh, central and peripheral nervous systems. There's amino acids. The, I, said, I think I've used this term already. The universally excitatory neurotransmitter. It's called that not because it's, well, it's called that because it's the most common neurotransmitter in your brain, and it's, the most, and it's also excitatory. So the ion channels there are going to be sodium. GABA is the inhibitory. It's, it's, it's like the other side of this coin. GABA is gamma aminobutyric acid, or just GABA. Just go with GABA. Even in papers you'll read, if you're reading one for your, for your uh, assignment, you'll see that people you know, don't say gamma aminobutyric acid. They just say GABA, so just call it GABA. Okay? GABA is important. If this is excitatory, this is inhibitory, one of the things that GABA does is a uh, GABA, um, the GABA system's important. Uh, like I said, inhibitory things. So a lot of drugs that operate on the GABA system are, of course, depressants. Things like benzodiazepines, barbiturates, alcohol, operate the GABA system. Does Interesting. It, Sorry, go ahead. Does it also opens the channel? Yeah, it opens. It opens a chlorine channel. That's it. so GABA neurotransmitters. Uh, a GABA, uh, do I have one of a picture of those? Actually, I have a picture of that next time. <laughs> a GABA um, uh, receptor complex has receptors for benzodiazepines, for barbiturates, for alcohol. And there also are 
uh, nicotonic receptors, so nicotine receptors, explaining one of the weird things that a stimulant like nicotine can calm you down. It'll, uh, because actually our receptors in the, nicotine receptors in the gamma system. And then there's glycine and proline. These are basically like these, except they're a little less common. Various peptides. Substance P is probably the one I want to talk about here. Well, clearly it is, not just probably. I put it on the slide. P stands for pain. This is the pain messaging neurotransmitter. And you think to yourself, that's an odd name. Yeah, it is. And it was come up with because they, they, they didn't know what to call it. When people were first studying pain, seriously, uh, they figured there has to be a neurotransmitter that transmits pain signals. That just makes sense, right? Sure. So they called it substance P, but they hadn't discovered it. So sort of like, remember, Vega stuff, when, when Von Levy discovers it, he gives it a name, calls it Vega stuff. But we changed it to acetylcholine. In this case, what happened here is people talked so much about this thing they figured must exist, substance P, <laughs> when it was isolated, they just kept calling it substance P. So that, I, I kind of like that. It's uh, also easier to remember that one. And I'm just going to talk about a few, because if we did this all day, there's 200 or so. So we're going to talk about a few. That's it. So there are morphine-like substances, endorphins, and encephalins. Okay. Get the distinction right, so I'm going to read my notes here. Okay, so endorphins are neuropeptides and encephalins are ligands, as if, if you're wondering what the difference is. They both serve the same function. Uh, these are painkillers. They're painkillers. We make our own morphine. Right? So there are receptors for these neurotransmitters and the Substances morphine and codeine are shaped really almost exactly like this. Now, one of the side effects of, and you probably would know this, is that if you take morphine, I'm sure somebody here has had a surgery and they've taken morphine after a surgery or a, or a bad injury of some sort and be given morphine. And the thing about morphine is that the main effect in that case, that's the thing you're interested in, is painkiller. The side effect is you're high as a kite. Now, this explains, for example, the phenomenon of runner's high. The idea of after a workout, you feel really good, right? Even if it hurts. It's like, oh, that felt great. What a great workout. I feel wonderful. And that literally is, it's a real physiological thing. When vigorous exercise happens or an injury, your body releases endorphins and encephalins. You, it kills pain, but it also has a side effect. It feels nice. Right. Now, too much of that is unpleasant for a lot of people and disoriented. So you might wonder, well, why do poppies have opium in them? You know, the main ingredients of opium are codeine and morphine. Um, this is a wonderful evolutionary thing because what happens here is the poppy has developed a defense mechanism. And that defense mechanism is being full of opium. Because if I'm a, let's see, so opium fields, we're talking Afghanistan, 
What are we talking about for animals around there? Goats, a lot of goats, right? Uh, I eat one of those poppies once. Because if I'm a goat, I'm not really into, you know, pushing the doors of perception, man. Um, I don't really enjoy being stoned. Because I'm a goat. And in that large quantity, it's unpleasant. So then they don't eat poppies anymore. So it's a defense mechanism. Almost all these drugs that we talk about, that we get into nature, this is where we get most of our drugs, um, almost all of them, the ones that are psychoactive, there are receptors for these things. And evolution basically has, over the years, think about this, if you, if you make a molecule that's very similar to one of these and when something eats it, it gets stoned and doesn't want to eat you anymore. The more and more it's like this, the more that, that uh, characteristic in those plants get propagated, right? So that's pretty much what's happening. So our neurochemistry probably came first, not ours, but you know, animals' neurochemistry came first, and then the defense mechanism showed up. There's other peptides, insulin, prolactin, and growth hormone, vasopressin. You, you might think of all these things as being hormones. There's even one called HGH, human growth hormone. Prolactin is the hormone that is released that uh, causes the letdown reflex in women, right? So when they have, uh, when they're nursing a baby, anybody here has ever done that knows that it can get to the point where any the, the smallest little stimulus can cause you to express milk, right? So uh, hearing a baby cry, seeing a picture of someone else's baby. But we think of that as a hormone, but it actually does uh, circulate in the central nervous system, for example. All right. So that's just a few of them that I thought I'd highlight. Let's talk about how these things work. So the neurotransmitter molecule binds to a receptor. This happens really quickly. Okay? It's, you, we can slow it down and think of being slow, but it's really quite quick. <coughs> It's like a lock and a key mechanism. And the biology students in the room will know but the lock and key idea of sort of enzymes is the same kind of idea here. So these things, the, the, the lock is the transmitter site, I'm sorry, the receptor site and the, I guess, the, sorry, the binding site. And the neurotransmitter is the key. And it opens up an ion channel. So the binding site and the binding channel. I used this analogy the other day, but if you think of my hand as being the, so my fingers here are the binding site. This other hand is the neurotransmitter. It binds and it opens the door. Here's the ion channel. Okay. So it binds and opens the door and ions rush in. And if it's positive, it's going to be sodium. It could be calcium. And if it's negative, it's going to be chlorine. Usually one neuron has only one type of receptor. Well, at least the majority of the receptors on a given neuron are for the same neurotransmitter. But you might have a situation where you have some positives and some negatives, right? So you have maybe some GABA and some glutamate. So that's negatives and positives, but you know what I mean on the single neuron. 
And remember, there may be as many as 10,000 synapses to a single cortical neuron in a human, so there's gonna be lots of different. The majority will be of a, the same neurotransmitter because neurotransmitters, you know, your brain is wired in circuits, basically. So it's typically gonna have, the majority are gonna be uh, of one given neurotransmitter. This is a great place for drug interaction. Right at the, the receptor is the place for drug interaction. Because what, set, what, what neurotransmitters can do is they can mimic, I'm oh, sorry, what, what drugs can do is they can mimic neurotransmitters. And I just talked about how morphine and codeine work that way. But this is true of all kinds of drugs. Uh, the THC, CBD, LSD is basically serotonin. It basically is just serotonin. Uh, a lot of drugs, a lot of sort of uh, hallucinogens are in essence just, they're so similar to neurotransmitters that you, it's almost like you're just taking some. Okay. But you could also, what, if, what about, uh, so if you've got a, there are transmitter molecules floating around in a synapse. So this is a, here's an axon here. I'm just gonna get that right there. There's an axon, that's a dendrite. Um, these things are floating around, and let's say we've got a receptor here for, these to be round, so we'll make the receptor look like that. Okay. These things are gonna float down and hopefully bind onto these binding sites and open up an ion channel. That's their goal in life. Now, what if I came along as another drug, as a drug rather, that uh, changes the shape of this thing? So I, I come along, I'm a drug, and I'm shaped like that. So now suddenly, when this thing binds to this, like, it looks like that now, this thing can't bind to this. It's become something else. It's like you've added something onto the key. So it's sort of like if you took the key to your house, if you think of the key in your house being a neurotransmitter, and then you decided to just put a bunch of gum on it. You can't put it in the lock. So a lot of drugs will work that way. A lot of drugs will be, well, will we'll make it so, might we have another, let's just turn around a little bit of color here. No, we don't have color, let's just make them solid. Let's say that's a different drug. But it's gonna fit in this, so it's gonna fit in the key, in, in, in the lock. Right? What if this thing here, this thing that's gonna to bind to this neurotransmitter in it and inactivate it in the synapse, what if we had another drug that came along and destroyed this? There's drugs that work that way. What about if we had a drug that came along and bound to the neurotransmitter but didn't open up the door? So it just gums up the works. So in that case, to continue our gum and key unlock metaphor, in that case, it's like taking some gum and putting it, bashing it into here, into the key, and the keyhole, it's like, I can't open the door. That's how naloxone works. You've probably heard about naloxone. You can get a free naloxone kit. Uh, you see somebody ODing, give it to them. What naloxone does is it binds to, op uh, to, to, to uh, opiate receptor sites, but doesn't open the ion channel. And by binding to the opiate receptor site, so it makes it busy, it can't, doesn't open the ion channel. It 
can, can stop a potential overdose. This is why the government gives it in for free, because it's a way to save somebody's life. So there's all kinds of different drug interactions that take place at the synapse. So almost all of the sort of interesting psychoactive drugs we think about operate at a synaptic level. And starting next time, we'll talk all about drugs. Um, and I teach a whole course about drugs. What? Yes. Well, I also teach a lot of courses on drugs, and that's an entirely different thing. But I'm quite high right now. But, no I'm not, I'm drunk. Okay. Yeah, so, and yeah, Neuropharm probably offered next year. It's every two years ago. So you might want to take that, it's fun. You get to hear all the stories of my new spent youth. And then there was this time when we were so high, there's a lot of stories that started like that. Um, that I can now just freely say because it's all legal. Not all of it, but I do. I'm not gonna say anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that, everything I said up to that point, yeah, we're okay. Towing the line. It's then when you get, yeah, that's actually, and you're using the, using towing the line correctly, too. That's good. It's also, yeah, it's also, you know, uh, I haven't done a lot of illegal drugs. A lot. Um, <laughs> oh, you know, so that, those are chemical synapses. Chemical synapses, but there's also electrical synapses. These are really close together. These are like two and a half nanometers apart. It's basically touching. And this allows the flow um, of ions from one neuron to another without doing the direct connection, without the uh, immediate step of the neurotransmitter. And they're bidirectional, so it goes, if we think of, um, up and down in this case, the diagram on the board here, if these were basically connected, ions would flow between the two, neuro the two neurons. So that's very fast transmission because you don't have the, you have the extra step do you, of the chemical messenger. If you need really fast reactions that don't have to be modified in any way, this is great. So a lot of defensive behavior from a lot of animals Stuff that's sort of hardwired is going to be using electrical synapses. They are incredibly common in uh, things like us. So there's no receptor binding site, but something that's called a connexon. I know that looks like a, somebody misspelled the word connection, or like how maybe they spelled it in like 1630. But actually, that's it's just a connexon. Okay, so that's. That connection happens, and it's bidirectional, and it's ions only. See, one of the things that can happen with chemical messengers is you can have what's called gain. Gain means as a signal propagates, it gets stronger. And how do you make it stronger? Well, you could have a feedback mechanism. Think about all these different kinds of synapses, axo, axonic, axodendritic, dendro, dendritic, et cetera. 
So when it fires, it can feed on itself and fire more and more and more. So there's gain. This can't happen. There's no gain with an electrical synapse because it's just a direct connection from one neuron to another and allowing a flow of ions. So it's very fast, but it's going to be simple behavior typically. Right? There's going to be things that are pretty simple. It's going to be kind of off and on. Does that make sense? Questions so far? Yes, please. Um, am I getting it right that bidirectional, so it can go from dendrite to exon and exon to dendrite? Yeah. yeah. But as you know, it's not just exons and dendrites. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So it goes both ways. And so basically, as, as I said here, I'm going to go up or down. But there's no gain. Here's a little diagram. So you can see here, it's basically a physical thing. It opens up and lets ions through. Can you repeat about the no gain? Like, how can we explain it? OK, yeah. So let's think about this. So we've got, if we've got, let's just make a simple little neural network here. So now these aren't going to be neurotransmitters, these circles. <laughs> now they're um, neurons. Maybe I'll draw it. Oh, they're not going to draw it. So uh, let's just make some connections here. So this one fires onto this one, let's say, and this one here. And then this one here, and here, and here, which leads to, I don't know, some big behavior. I don't know what that behavior is, but I don't know. It doesn't matter. So this is just some pretty simple circuit. What can happen, though, is let's say once this one here fires, maybe this one also fires this neuron, which fires this neuron again. That's gain. So once this one fires, it fires this one and this one, which makes this one release more, this one release more. Please. So it's like momentum, kind of? Yeah, that's a way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, momentum. That's well done. Yeah, so it's like if you ever look at a. It's funny. You know, do this, you think everybody, you think of a really good idea, and then you realize that not everyone has professional recording equipment at home. So if you look at your audio interface and it says gain, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what gain is. Oh. Your pro the signal's going, getting louder in that case. Oh. It's the same thing would happen. This, this is basically like a volume button, except it's happening physiologically. But that's what gain means in that case. Like it's, signal, it's an increase in signal as the signal propagates. Now, of course, this, this sort of, I don't know, um, little tiny neural network I've drawn up here is pretty basic. There could be other things here affecting this one. Right, so it's all kinds of, they're even outside this network. Right? It's an exceedingly complicated piece of gear, I'm right. Okay. Oh yeah, and this between this this is called a gap junction, right? Between the two, you got a gap junction. So there's a connexon, and the thing between the two connexons is a gap junction. Okay. All right. Questions about that before we move on to talk about learning and memory, and the synapse. Okay. So let's talk about synapses and the original idea here, one of the first ideas, I guess we'll call it original, of how learning might happen at the 
neural level. Uh, this was from Donald Hebb. You've heard of Hebb before. Hebb was the person who had that quote about how you can't tell how much something's genetic and how much it's environment. It's like, like the football field. Remember that guy? Same guy. Comes up with this idea of what he called, well, he didn't call it a Hebb synapse. Other people did afterwards. This is from his book called The Organization of Behavior, which is quite a lofty title. Very important book in the history of neuroscience. And the amazing thing is he reasoned this out. This isn't something that he saw in electron microscopes. He just reasoned this out. It must work like this. So what he's saying is, when an axon cell A is near enough to excite cell B and repeatedly or persistently takes part in its firing, some growth process or metabolic change takes place in one or both cells such that A's efficiency as one of the cells firing B increases. So once a circuit fires once, the next time it fires, it'll fire more quickly. You can see how that could be learning, right? So once this neuron fires this neuron, the next time it's going to be somehow faster. More efficient, whatever. It's called a Hebb synapse. Head, McGill University. Okay. So let's talk about the simplest form of learning. Because, well, let's, basically, let's start at the simplest thing. The simplest form of learning is something called habituation. Habituation shows up in every animal that has ever been tested, every single one, every species. This is the simplest form of learning, and it's the most universal form of learning. And you'll probably see in a second, considering what it is, that it makes a great deal of sense that it's been around a very long time. This is the decrease in the strength of a response after repeated presentations of a discrete stimulus. So let's break that down a little bit. Decrease in the response. So there's some response the animal would give to a stimulus. But through repeated presentation, there's less response. And it has to be a discrete stimulus. So it's not constant. It's not constant. So if we think of something, it's kind of getting used to something. So think about the sound of the projectors, which now you all notice that you hadn't until I just pointed it out. Because you all got used to it. It's kind of like that, except that that's a constant stimulus. That's a constant stimulus. What I'm talking about here is discrete stimuli. Like that. I can clap a little bit. But eventually, you stop having, say, a startle reaction to it, right? It just stops. You could eventually probably get to the point where, if I kept doing that and my hands didn't start getting sore, uh, for, if I did that for another couple of minutes, you literally probably stop even noticing it. You wouldn't have any startling reaction at all. We could put, you, put a polygraph on you and measure galvanic skin response and there would be no start. What you basically learned is that stimulus is unimportant, I don't care. 
But it's not something, not some sort of cognitive mechanism. It's not something we think about. It just happens. It just happens. So if you think about Oh, I don't know. Uh, I, I cycle a lot. And sometimes after I finish, so I go out and it's like, I think there might be a little tiny bit of dirt in one of my shoes. And if they're, they're tight, cycling shoes, and you know. It's like, ah, I'll be fine. And after a kilometer, I don't even notice it. And then I take my shoe off and there's a rock in my shoe. Because I, I've basically gotten used to it and it's not harming me anymore. Something to that effect. So it's, again, kind of like getting used to it. But it has to be discreet, so maybe that example isn't great. Let's think about, oh, I know, my bike, let's say my bike's making a noise. And every time I crank the pedals, it goes click, 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 which it did for a couple of months until I got my bottom bracket fixed. There were times I didn't even notice it. And then I'd think, is that still there? Oh, yeah, there it is. <laughs> but I'd have to actually think about it. So that's what's happening here. And this is, again, typically what we would use would be a startle reflex. Very often. This is done with rats a lot of times. And you just startle. Very loud noise, and you measure the startle. A loud noise, a bright light. Like, nothing is going to damage the animal. Because, again, you don't want to hurt your subjects. That would be, even if you hate animals, you wouldn't want to hurt your science. So you'd, you'd be nice to your rats. So a loud noise is a pretty or a bright light. And eventually the animal just pay, doesn't pay attention to it. It's gone. So it's like, oh, it's just part of living here. You know? So this is not sensory adaptation, which is what not hearing the sound of the projector is. This is not fatigue. You're just so tired that you don't notice. This is a learning phenomenon. This is the stimuli being presented, and you're just not noticing it anymore. And it's stimulus-specific. So if I kept doing that clapping thing, and then suddenly I pulled out an air horn and did it, that was thoroughly used to it. So it's stimulus-specific. And it's really specific. Like, it's not that that would, but then you wouldn't, yeah, it's not quite that stimulus-specific. But it is about a given stimulus. So we know it can't be fatigue then, because if it was fatigue, it wouldn't be stimulus specific. Okay? Typically, we use a couple of things as the orienting response or the startling response. A lot of times, like a loud noise, your dog will look at it, you will look at a loud noise. That's just something we do, we orient towards loud noises. When I clapped my hands the first time, a couple y'all looked at me. I heard some startles. I think I heard the other one. What the hell was that? I said something. That was good. What's up? This is like uh, the third psych class this semester who's tried, uh, who has explained habituation and has clapped for no reason. No, that's that's a it's 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 a classic response. Right? That's that's what we use. Um, you wouldn't use a clap with a rat. You might use a loud burst of white noise, like that. And they, they look at it. And you do it. 
10 or 15 times, they just, eh, well, whatever. They go back to their regular life of grooming themselves. And, and you can do this with a rat. You can do this with a person. You can do this with a bee. You can do it with it. Please. Oh, just when you're deer hunting? <laughs> if there's a deer walking away, but you want to shoot it. Okay. Is the camera. Uh, you, like you whistle, and it, that's like seven They already, It'll yeah. stop, and it'll look at you, yeah. and then just long enough for you to. Just long enough to, yeah, exactly. Take your picture. Right. <laughs> so there are certain rules to how habituation works, and... These rules were originally laid out um, by Thompson and Spencer in 1966. Yes, I know that's a long time ago. But this is sort of classic stuff. So it's gradual with time. In other words, it doesn't happen all at once. You need a few presentations of the stimulus. Right, so every, the, the, the clapping, there has to be enough of them that you stop noticing. If you withhold the stimulus, the response will reoccur. So if I stop doing the clapping, and then I do it again, it startles you a bit. Right? But if I start doing it again, it stops being a problem. The acoustics in here are wild. Yeah, anyway. That, that, the acoustics, the worst acoustics in the whole place is NW200, the great big lecture room. It's awful. Yeah. You would think that, anyway, I'm gonna go off on a bit of a rant about how, what, why, Ask an engineer to know about sound. Anyway, when you pull the stimulus, it comes back. The response is. But there are savings. Savings happen. Savings is a learning phenomenon. When the learning seems to have gone, when, the, when forgetting has happened, and you relearn something, you relearn it more quickly. The same thing happens with habituation. So if I did start doing, I'm not going to clap anymore. But if I started doing the, and I say that now because now I'm going to startle you by clapping. Um, look into here. It's like I'm seven years old. I get distracted by shiny objects. Um, so we withhold the stimulus. Your response is going, you know, and then I started again. You get startled, but your, you stop responding. It happens more quickly. So I can draw a picture of that for sure. So that axis is time. This axis is, axis is response, OK? So at first, you respond a lot, and then less, and less, and less, and less, and less. And then you go back to there. And then I withhold the stimulus. And then I play the stimulus again, and you respond again. But you learn much more quickly. 
So you get savings. It's the same thing that happens in all kinds of stuff. Think about high school math, if you must. How many people here did a semester system in high school? Am I the only person? Okay, there's like three of us. Okay. But oftentimes what would happen would be you'd have math. Like I remember my grade, grade nine, I had math in my very first term of grade nine, and I didn't have math again until my second term of grade 10. I hadn't done, I guess we were doing mostly algebra at that point, um, in over a year. And you come in, and the first, the teacher's like, uh, so today what we're going to do is we're going to, so what are the factors of, uh, let's see if I can better do one properly, uh, 3x plus 2. Factor that. And you're going, I don't know, I don't even know what that means. And then it's like it's x plus 1, x plus 2, you go, oh, right. So you, 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 the same thing shows up. Happens a lot in math. Think about skating or riding a bike. The first time I get on my bike on the road, I'm still a trainer now, but when I do get back on the road, probably in early April, for about the first 100 meters, I'm like, whoa, this is a little different, and then it's fine. I don't have to actually relearn riding a bike, but I kind of do. Or skating. Skating's classic. Because if you've not skated, and a lot of us haven't skated in a long time, put a pair of skates on, and you go, whoa, okay, yeah, I'm skating. No problem. I can stop, I can skate backwards. But for the first, you know, couple of minutes, you're like, I don't know if I remember how to skate. And then you remember your dad holding you, his, your, your shoulders like this, with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, going, no, come on, make a tee. Now push. Maybe that's just me. So this happens with almost anything we learn. It also happens with something so simple like habituation. The reason this is thought was the ultimate model of learning and, uh, and memory is that it happens in everything and it has all the same rules of everything that happens in learning and memory. It's very cool. The more intense the stimulus, the quicker the learning. To a point, I mean, if you played that sound so loud that you destroyed the rat's eardrums, yes, it's not going to respond at all, but that's not learning, that's called torture, I believe would be the word. But the louder the stimulus, let's say, the brighter the stimulus, the quicker the learning. Yeah, that makes sense. So the, the stimulus is louder, they're going to stop responding more quickly. The weird thing about this is not responding is what shows learning. That's what I think a lot of people have trouble getting their heads around is it's not, we, have, we tend to think of learning as, oh, now I'll do a thing after I did a thing. This is don't do that anymore. And you've learned something. Because the animal isn't oriented or isn't startled. But the more intense the stimulus, again, up to a point, unless you get ridiculous, the more quickly the animal will habituate. Okay? Questions so far? Anybody here taking learning, by the way? 3306? Didn't think so, okay. Then there's overlearning. What's over? Well, overlearning happens when you learn and you can't show any more responding, but you're still learning.
this example here again, we could go, you can go with uh, something athletic if you want. Do you think professional athletes need to learn? Professional hockey players, I think they know how to skate. I think even the really slow guys can skate. But they do skating drills. In the NHL, they still do skating drills. You can watch an NHL practice and it's because it looks a lot like the practices I had when I was seven. Except these guys are bigger and better. But the, the drills are very similar. Pilots train and train and train. Soldiers train and train and train. Unless they're Russian soldiers, they just get thrown into the meat grinder. But this thing happens where you can't respond anymore because you're perfect, but you're still learning. In this case, however, we're going to turn on it here because it's not more responding, it's less responding. The animal can't respond any more than not responding at all to, I'm going to clap, that. So how do we, how do we know that happens? Well, science, that's how. So all you got is your, uh, let's see, can we use that? No, let's get rid of that. We'll leave the axes there. So what we do is we're going to train the animal. Actually, let's change the axes a bit when I put them up here. So the animal stops responding, stop it eventually. It doesn't respond, it's a, we say asymptote, but then theoretically, it's still learning. It's just that it can't respond less than not responding at all. Now does that follow? Because it's important that you understand the idea of it's not responding, but theoretically, it's doing this. It's responding, it can't, it can't respond less than not responding. But we get this overlearning phenomenon. Now how do we test that? Well, what we do is we compare a group that have been treated like this and given trials, say, out to here, with a group that were given trials just to where there's no more responding. We withhold the stimulus, and then we see how much they respond. This group responds maybe here, back where they were. This group down here. So what this is showing us then is that if there's a constant amount that comes back, but they must have learned, that's this part here, they must have learned more, but they couldn't show us that they learned anymore. Because the evidence of learning is not responding. You can't respond less than not responding at all. Does that make sense? It's kind of, a, it's kind of cool. Yeah. That's called, it's got a name, habituation below zero, which is, sounds like the name of like some kind of shitty 80s band. Coming up, the new single from habituation below zero. And we get overlearning in all kinds of things. Yeah, please tell me. Is this sort of like, um, let's say there's a cliff. Yeah. Um, if you jump off of it, you're going to get hurt. Yes. And this is another cliff. 
yeah, jump off that, you're probably gonna die. But the same response in each is like not to jump at all. Yes. But you know. Yeah, yeah, that's a good analogy. That's reasonable. Yeah, I like it. And if 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 Bugs Bunny has taught me anything, if you jump off a cliff, as long as you don't look down, you're fine. You can run right out. So you look down, and then for a while you, you float, and you go, then you fall. Ah, Bugs Bunny. This defies the law of gravity, but I don't know. I never studied law, so he's just floating. That's one of my favorite things. If you take one step on that rope, I'll cut it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, Bugs Bunny's great. I thought I wrote something there. Okay. And we get stimulus generalization. It is stimulus specific, but there is generalization such that I think I'll oh, maybe draw this one again. Yeah, let's do that. I've got to remove a lot of this stuff I've done here. There should be a way to just move all of it. But there isn't every little freaking dot one time. So, yeah. There we go, yay! Okay. So, let's say the stimulus that we're going to play is a 440 hertz tone. Is that a C? I think that's a C. And we take a look at the amount of responding there, and there's there, the animals, you know, learned and habituated. And then what we're going to do is we're going to play some other tones. Let's say. 430 and 450 and 460 and 420. <laughs> 420. And we then take a look here and we look and see, oh yeah, the responding looks like that. So you get some responding over here, some here, not really very much there. Now, what's happened in this case is that the animal has generalized its responding, it's learning, not just to stimulate it right at, at 440 hertz, but also but to others. But you get this nice normal distribution around the original stimulus. Stimulus generalization. This shows up in every kind of learning, including everything from you know, language learning and math and you know, why do we do things say, well, you have to know this, you have to know this first. Well, part of that's just stimulus generalization. Okay. So that's sort of the way we can look at the situation. And because it has all these rules, those rules and those rules also apply to other kinds of learning, we can look at something simple like Flatworm, a nematode, 302 neurons. And you know what every neuron does. And then you can actually study habituation in a nematode and make conclusions about mammal brains. Because learning is going to work the same way in all of them. So, or you can look at aplesia. Aplesia are sea slugs. One of the things you can do with sea slugs, little tiny things, but it can be, they can also be really big. But um, the little sea slugs we're talking about here, 
This work was done by, uh, it should be Kandel, not Kendall. I'm going to fix that. I tend to, when I find mistakes, actually fixing them on the fly. Kandel et al. Uh, Kandel won a little thing called a Nobel Prize for this. So what Kandel and his group were doing were looking at aplesia, and what a key aplesia have is they have a gill, and they withdraw the gill if, if it gets touched. And what you do, you, you just squirt water on it, and the gill withdraws. It's a simple reflex. Let's see if it responds the way any other reflex does, like with an intuition, right? And it does, of course. And the connection here is pretty much a sensory motor. It's a direct neural connection, kind of like you think about the moths with their ears. Same kind of idea here. So it's from the sensory neuron on the gill to the gill withdraw motor neuron. There's actually less neurotransmitter released into the synapse between the motor and sensory neuron after repeated presentations of the discrete stimulus. That stimulus being squirting water in it. Actually, less neurotransmitter, and it's acetylcholine. There's actually a decrease in the calcium current. Remember, there's those calcium channels that the, uh, right at the axon he'll have to detect the voltage and make the decision about firing or not. There's actually less calcium going in. There's some changes happened at these calcium channels. Same thing happens in cats and the orienting response. If you look at the, the, the uh, motor, the sort of the sensory neurons, and we would use in that case a lot of noise, so it's going to be uh, in the temporal lobe. The connection of the uh, ear, so that in the cat, it's a lot more complicated. It's going to go through the spinal column and through the thalamus and up to the cortex. In that case, still though, you get a less release of neurotransmitter and a decrease in the calcium current. So this works the same way in cats as it does in aplesia, and almost then certainly works that way. So habituation, as I said, because of its generality, it's thought it was the universal learning paradigm. This is the thing that behavioral neuroscientists use as a model of learning. Now, there's all kinds of other learning that other animals do too, but this is really simple, and you can do it with a little tiny thing that you, and you know all the neural circuits. That's the situation. Pretty cool. Let's talk about long-term potentiation. This is basically the Hebb synapse. This is the idea that when a circuit fires, the next time it fires, it fires more quickly. It potentiates. So an NDA, which is a neuromodulator, a neuromodulator is like a neurotransmitter, except it isn't one. What it does is it makes neurotransmitters 
well, in this case, uh, the NMDA makes, I think it's acetylcholine, work more efficiently. So NMDA actually is the neuromodulator that makes LTP happen in hippocampus. And if you block NMDA, you block LTP. So you use an NMDA antagonist, and you then get less long-term potentiation, if any. When you block LTP, you block learning. This is in rats. Let's think of what they use in this case is what's called a Morris water maze, which is uh, a piece of gear invented by Richard Morris. And as Richard Morris would point out to you, it is not a maze. It is a pool. It's about this big around. So about a meter in diameter. And about 10 centimeters deep, filled with skim milk. Because it's okay. And there's a little tiny platform that's just below the surface, but a centimeter below. And I can tell you something, you know what rats is they don't like swimming. Oh, they can swim. They just don't like it. So if you take a rat and put it in this Morris water maze, which again is more like a pool, it starts swimming. It doesn't like it, but it starts swimming. And eventually it runs into the little platform, stands up the little platform, it's like, this is great, I like it here. The next time you put them in, gets a little better, eventually they swim right to the platform. Right to the platform. They've learned with the platforms. And they get better at, they're better at this if you put what are called landmarks in the room. So you put, basically, usually what people do is they just put posters on the wall, things like that. Or you can do it where the, 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 the Morris water maze is like a, so it's like that, and then there's like circular walls around it, like fake walls, you put things on the walls. If you block long-term potentiation, the rat doesn't learn where the platform is. Okay. So if you block long-term potentiation with an NMDA uh, antagonist, they will not learn where the platform is. Okay. Uh, it's not quite that simple, unfortunately. It's that all looked like that means long-term potentiation is learning. Uh, Deb Saussier, who's actually I believe now she's the president of the University of Northern British Columbia or something. What a big thing. Uh, when she was, I think, a grad student, one of the things that she found was that if you let, if you gave the rats experience swimming first without the platform and then gave them an NMDA blocker, they still learn where the platform is. So there's something else going on. LTP is not learning, but it's important in learning. But it isn't just learning. And the opposite, by the way, of LTP is long-term depression, LTD. So you get less responding, less firing, the more the more certain So that would be for something inhibitory. So LTP, basically it is the Hebb synapse. It's the idea of one, except it's a whole bunch of neurons. But the Hebb synapse idea is one neuron 
makes another neuron fire more quickly. That's the hip synapse. LTP is this whole circuit fires more quickly. When LTP was first discovered in the, in the mid-80s. And apparently someone came and told Donald Hebb that this, about this result, he was, and he was dying. And he apparently looked up and just said, tell me something I didn't already know. Because you know, he just figured this out in the 1940s. That must work like this. It just took 35, 40 years for someone to find it. So, pretty cool. Here's, a, here's an example of learned birds, bird song. Oh man, songbirds are great. They sing. And it's a great, interesting, cool behavior. It's such an interesting, cool behavior that uh, there are two people that work here that do bird song work and bird call work. Larry Bloomfield, Jed Flynn. So, what happens in, and it's usually males that do the singing, there are some species where the females sing, but it's not very common. Um, what happens is, what the function of bird song is to attract mates and to fight away other males, to take, stake a claim to a territory. So if you, when you ever hear the lo lovely chirping of birds, so it's the bird song in the morning in the spring, that's a whole bunch of horny male birds saying, hey baby, that's what's going on there. They're basically, it's like a bad construction site that they're cat calling. Like it's awful. Nature's really sexist. So, it's obviously important behavior. Think about birds though. Is it, they fly. So they have to be light. Birds are incredibly, Birds are basically built for flight. When you think they evolved for flight, obviously, when I say built for, I don't mean something designed it. Their bones are hollow. They never, they don't keep waste inside them. They just shit stuff out as soon as it goes in. Right? They don't even stop, they just no. shit and run. That's what they do, that's right. Because they don't want to be carrying poop around because it's more weight. You want to be as light as possible if you're going to be up in the air. This is going to be true of your brain. If we could make our brain lighter at some point, let's do it. So what happens here is, as the song is learned, there's a part of the brain that grows. The HVC. I can't remember what that stands for. Um, Hyperstriatum ventrale, something else. Uh, Carboluncendengence. I think that's what it is. Obviously, I made that last thing up that much. Anyway. So, that thing grows, and as it grows, the song gets more stable. Like when a, when a young bird, when a young male bird is learning to sing, it's HBC grows. And then it stays the same size, and then it gets to the fall and it shrinks. They don't need it in the fall. Birds don't sing in the fall. The birds will they'll call. So chickadees, for example, great example. My favorite bird, because without chickadees, I wouldn't be standing here. 
you know, the, the, the chickadee call, chickadee dee dee, you know that? You'll hear that all the time. That's a call. Uh, it's used basically to identify each other. It's like, hey, I'm right here. No, I'm right here too. The song, you know, I can't, I can't, I can't do bird song. You know, doo doo springs here, Phoebe. That's the song. This time of year, you will not be hearing. You're not going to hear that. You will hear chickadee dee dee or just dee dee. But you don't hear the song. They found mates. They've made it. So this part of their brain actually shrinks. Actually shrinks. This is work from uh, Fernando Fernando Narbonne's book. Oh, look, here's Narbonne again. Hey, let's talk more about black-capped chickadees who store food and recover it hours or days later for future consumption. He said, using a sentence, he's using many, many articles. Um, in the spring, sorry, in the, in the winter and the fall, these birds store food. They don't fly south for the winter. They don't migrate. Their evolutionary response to there's not a lot of food around it. When I find food, I will hide enough that I can live on it tomorrow and to, right after I have something to eat. When a chickadee wakes up in the morning, chickadees weigh about between 11 and 12 grams. When a black-capped chickadee wakes up in the morning, in the winter, if it doesn't eat within about half an hour, it will starve to death. Have you ever see, you ever see chickadees uh, roosting when they're asleep in the winter and they're, they're all puffy? They, they look completely different. They're, they're not all asleep with their feathers. They, they puff them out to keep themselves warm. And then what they do is when they wake up in the morning, the first thing they do is they fly and find some of the food they hid in the last few weeks, eat some, and then go look for more food to hide. You know what most songbirds do? They leave. They go to North Carolina or Florida or Georgia or I don't know, somewhere else. Chickadees, jays, things like that. They're like, no, 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 we're, we're, we're good here. We're good here. We'll find food and store it. It'll be fine. Now, to find that food, you have to remember where you put it. You have to remember where you put it. That's spatial memory. They do use memory to, to find the, the food. They, the memory they use is about distant landmarks. And they use a hierarchy such that it's distant landmarks, then local landmarks, then uh, things like color. So the distant landmarks might be the line of trees over there, the local landmarks. So if, I, if I'm a chickadee and I sort something right here, uh, the distal landmark might be the flagpoles, right? So I can figure out where from the flagpoles that goes to. And also then there's these desks. And then there's, you know, maybe local color. But they're relying on their spatial memory to find this food. And if they don't find food in the morning, as I said, they die. So their hippocampus must be pretty... Big, and in fact, yes, their hippocampus is bigger than you would expect by chance. 
uh, not by chance, by uh, their size of their body. Because if they don't find the food in the morning, they don't. And again, it's spatial memory. And it's the primacy of space over all else. It's the primacy of space. Some guy and his colleagues found that out. So, so, you want your brain to be big, and then they can do that. Well, let's do it like what Brandon uh, Audubon and Barnea did is they caught chickadees at different times of the year and then looked at the size of their hippocampus. And I can tell you, you don't do this with a bird MRI. You do this by cutting the bird's head off, taking out the, the brain, and slicing it and seeing the size of hippocampus. It's not pretty. There are bird MRIs. They don't exist. I've seen one. It's the strangest little contraption. It's a little tiny MRI. It's really cool. The lab my daughter works in is. So no more cutting. Oh no, you still no you still. It's it's you, you would want to do too much stuff. There'd be no way of really doing it slice by slice the way you'd want to do. Yeah. It's work brothers. Hippocampus is big in the winter and it shrinks in the summer. Oh. You want you're a bird, you want to be efficient. So again, this shows that new Synapses, new neurons, in fact, grow. So new connections happen every year. Extremely cool. Questions on this? Perfect. Look at that. Look at the timing on this. It's almost, you'd think I taught this course before. Wow. Um, a lot of the interesting stuff that happens in our system it happens at a synaptic level. Drugs, learning, etc. And this is where the electrical gets chemical, and that's why I just find this whole thing, how it works, just fascinating. And learning is probably happening here. And there's still a lot, however, to learn about the neural basis of learning. This is one of those things that when someone finally figures out the, like the neural basis of learning, how it happens at the, literally how it happens at the neural level, even something as simple, let's get to say classical condition rather than habit habituation, that person, that's the minute, that's going to be another Nobel Prize. So if you do win a Nobel Prize, because you go off and do great research and discover that, I want you mentioning my name at the ceremony. Just say, I remember back in 2022, and this really odd person yelling and clapping his hands, talking about this for the first time. And I just want to thank him and give him $100,000. <laughs> You'd have to show up if that were the case. Yeah, you'd show up. You don't not show up for a Nobel Prize. No, no, no. <laughs> if you want your reward, you're going to have to show up. Oh, no, oh, oh. Considering you're giving me 100 grand, you're paying for the flight to Sweden. But yeah, sure, I know. Would you have next of kin? Well, yeah, it might be past my death, so maybe it'll be one of my kids. Sure. But to my estate. And, of course, because synapse just means gap in Greek, don't say synaptic gap, because you're being redundant. You're calling it a gap gap. It's like when people say foveal pit. 
You know what fovea means in Latin? It means pit. So you're saying pit, pit. It's, it's like DC Comics, Detective Comics, Comics. Yeah. HIV virus. Chai tea is another great one. ATM machine. God, that one really bugs <laughs> What's your thin number? Oh, my social insurance number number? <laughs> First of all, I'm not telling you, telling you. And secondly, bite me, bite me. I get really angry about the smallest things, don't I? It's passion, not anger. Thank you. That's what I want in my course evaluations. All right. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. See you next time. So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, these are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved. So you can redistribute this all you want, but if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the mu the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and it was called Podsafe Music. So this is all music that I have uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to uh, 
put on these podcasts. Uh, if you are interested, I can oftentimes find the, the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post. And uh, go look these bands up and, and buy their music. Because um, if they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to pay 99 cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, on that note, I will see you next time. <laughs>